0: Now approaching Junction at platform Airport, Please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does, they charge you a lot. what is it all about?
2: So you're going to have a Lilium app and that works initially in a few cities, ultimately globally. And you can book the jet on this app. And it works like a ride hailing service with the difference that you're getting an aircraft.
1: Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. This is episode one of two this week, so if you check your feed, you should have two new ones in there, and they are both about, in different ways, the future. For this one, I managed to grab a bit of time with Daniel Wiegand, the founder of Lilium, which you may have never heard of, but if he has his way, we will all know about Lilium soon. It could become one of those apps, like Uber or Netflix or Amazon. What does it do? Flying cars, obviously. Lilium is, I believe, the best-funded air taxi startup in the world. They've raised $100 million, plan to raise hundreds of millions more. And this last week, they published footage of their five-seater prototype flying around looking like an airworthy human transporter. The company is based in Munich, and their goal is, in the not-too-distant future, to have an app where, in a few swipes, you could hail an air taxi at the same cost on a per-mile basis of an Uber. Uh, And that sounds crazy, not least because he's a first-time founder. Um, And you may recall last season we had the head of Uber Elevate on this program. They also were working on air taxis, although they are not developing their own aircraft, whereas Lilium is. And Lilium basically wants to become an Uber competitor. So lots to play for. It's a really interesting story. And I will let Daniel explain why he thinks they can pull it off. So without further ado, here he is. Thank you for coming to our office. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Flying cars. Are you going to tell me
2: this isn't a flying car? It's not a (laughs) flying car, yes. It's an airplane because it can't drive on the road.
1: Fair. How did you end up doing this? Because this feels very Jetson-y, feels kind of out of out of this world, so to speak.
2: So I was watching a video from the V-22 Osprey on YouTube, a vertical takeoff and landing uh, troop transporter. I thought this is the perfect means of transportation because it flies fast, it could take off and land uh, basically anywhere, but it would have to be electric, it would have to be emission-free, it would have to be much more low noise, and it would have to be smaller. I was still a student at that time and sat down and did a lot of spreadsheets and calculations and all these things to assess is this physically possible with batteries with electric So what mortals? did you su- what were you studying? I was studying aerospace engineering okay. uh, flight propulsion. Right.
1: Hence why you were watching YouTube videos of the Osprey. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm a long-term flight enthusiast. Got you, got you. We so when a, was that? When did you kind of initially That hit was it in the year 2014. And I had a flatmate who was a law student at the time, and uh, he was the one saying, hey, dude, if you think this works, you should found a company and, and, and actually do this. And today it's great because we, the company works and we have 350 people, but at the time it probably sounded like the worst um, advice you can get yes. from somebody.
1: dude, you should totally do this. <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> but had you started businesses before? No, first time founder.
1: So what was the first step? So you, when f- did you, you graduate or did you start working on this immediately? Did you, when did you raise your first I money? I basically
2: started working on this immediately. I, I at first started assembling a co-founder team. One of the co-founders was a friend of mine and we had intended to build a company before that. But I convinced him to, to swap and, and build, the, build Lilium. Then he brought in another one. So our intention was to cover all technical fields of the aircraft already in the founder team. That took about six, eight months until the founder team was complete. And I was still finishing the master degree um, at that time in university. Right. I went to my professor for the master thesis and said, I want to make an electric jet engine in my master thesis. There was some skepticism in the beginning, probably. Can a student do this, etc. And there was no money. So finally came back and said, I'm going to pay for it myself, but I need, of course, university to review the report, etc. So then we basically built up the company at the same time while I finished my master degree.
1: So how did you pay for an electric jet engine by yourself? We
2: made a very small one, and we had suppliers who did all the parts manufacturing for free. They were super excited, and maybe we promised one or the other they can be part of the company later and be a supplier there. But it was tough. How small was it? Uh, it was about 20 centimeters in diameter and 30 centimeters in length or so. And we all went in debt. Uh, the whole company was bootstrapped in the first 12 months. We built the first like, half-scale prototype with 36 little engines, processors, software, etc., everything in the founders team. And then we got the first investor.
1: Who was the first investor?
2: His name is Frank Thelen. He's a German investor, very famous. He runs the German version of Shark Tank. Did you actually go on the German version of Shark we Tank? We didn't have to go on TV, <laughs> no. We were very lucky to meet him in a startup event. And the idea of an electric jet engine... Why did you think you could do it? Was it just
1: kind of a right place, right time in terms of the technology that was available? Or, yeah. An
2: electric jet engine is effectively inducted fan powered by an electric motor, and you have this in every hair dryer, for example. So the principle is very well known, and it's the same principle like any turbofan engine in a commercial aircraft where you have the fan powered by a gas turbine. So the question that was open was not can the principle work, but are we achieving the low noise values we intend to achieve, and are we achieving the power density we want to achieve? And at least on the power density side, electric motors have improved a lot in the last couple of five, ten years.
1: Why? Where has the energy density advances come from
2: it's a little bit the soft magnetic materials so the iron sheets but it's mostly the magnet strength that went up all the time over the last 50 oh, okay. years
1: allowing you to put a bunch
2: of hair dryers onto a wing yeah and each hair dryer about 60 horsepower wow okay
1: were you from an entrepreneurial family I mean, it just seems kind of like this totally harebrained, crazy thing that,
2: you know. Yeah, not really. My parents, uh, my mother is a high school teacher. My father did a PhD in biochemistry and and then became a manager at Roche. So they were not entrepreneurial. We have a culture in the company that is much oriented uh, with physics and science. Mm -hmm. So we trust in that as a kind of guidance to replace. Uh, the uncertainty in, in this kind of early phases of a startup. You need some guidance to take decisions. And uh, as an engineer, the best way to go is make an assessment, a scientific assessment. It tells you something and you take a decision based on the potential you see. So the science basically helps you get over the oh shit factor. Of yes, kind of <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so, so you get your first investor and what does that allow you to do? We promised to our first investor that uh, he invested half a million euros and that we would build within six months a full-size aircraft. We almost managed to do that. I think it took about eight, nine months to do it, uh, but we stayed in budget. So we hired the first, I don't know, eight people or so into the team and um, built a two-seater prototype. And about a year after he invested, we flew that prototype and basically demonstrated the controllability and all these things of that architecture of aircraft we had invented, and then basically used this prototype again to raise a bigger round. And in between, we got a 10 million investment uh, from Atomico. With this money together, we survived basically the next 12, 18 months, grew the team, and then used that prototype to raise the 90 million round. We had raised two years ago. And so what do you have today? Today, it's a totally different company. It's 350 people. It's quickly growing. We have large manufacturing facility, about 200 engineers. We have a full-size, full-weight, full-performance prototype, which flew for the first time in May this year. In the last six months, we have done a lot of flight testing with this prototype, expanded the flight envelope into transition flight, which is a very complex maneuver in aviation. You mean going from vertical to horizontal. Exactly. There's a lot of interesting and difficult flow phenomena happening when you you go through that phase. And you need to have a software that's capable of controlling the aircraft in that phase. But our aircraft is quite unique in doing this because we're using thrust vectoring on all four wings of the aircraft to control the plane. I don't know what that means. And You may have heard this concept comes from fighter jets, where you basically use it to make them more maneuverable. And in our case, it helps us in controlling the transition very efficiently and effectively. Thrust vectoring on all four wings, does that mean basically they can all be
1: controlled individually? Exactly. Like a helicopter, almost when you need it to.
2: Yes, it's very different to a helicopter. It's yeah. much more simple. So the yeah. only two functions the aircraft has is spinning up the engines, making more or less thrust, and changing the angle of the engines. We were able to eliminate all the control surfaces, all the other functions like variable pitch. There's no gearboxes, etc., on the aircraft. That makes it lighter and simpler, faster to design, faster to certify, etc.
1: Was there ever a moment where you didn't thi- where you thought this isn't going to work? Or were you kind of hit a wall either as an organization or engineering-wise where you're just like, maybe my
2: musings as a student have led me astray? Not really. So technically we never had this because you can you can trust science and, and mm-hmm. formulas, etc. Obviously there have been times where we thought, hmm, okay, we just realized we need much more money than we thought originally. <laughs> we were like super naive in the beginning about maybe, yeah. I don't know, needing 30, 40 million or so to do this. And the numbers grew at, at some point in time. But it was never like, we'll not make it. And so what is the idea that you, you can make a lot of them? So what? So the idea is to offer high-speed transportation to anybody, to any middle-class person living in any place in the country. High-speed transportation means here a means of transportation that's about 300 kilometers per hour. Mm-hmm. And you can't use high-speed trains to do this because the infrastructure is way too expensive. So it had to be something that flies. And it has to be something that's vertical takeoff and landing so you can actually bring it close to where people are living. On the top of buildings. Exactly. You land like a helicopter on the top yeah. of a building or so. And that means it has to be super low noise because otherwise you would not get permission And that's in a nutshell what we do. Where we're really unique uh, compared uh, to what you can see elsewhere outside is that we're focusing a lot on regional mobility, not so much on air mobility. So we have specifically designed an aircraft that is more efficient and that allows us to fly up to 300 kilometers on one battery charge. And that means we can connect cities to cities. We can fly from inner city outside into smaller cities, into the countryside. We can connect different large cities. But we can also fly inside a metropolitan area like L.A., for example, where you already have 70 miles to just cross from one end to the other. Are these going to be autonomous or are they going to be
1: piloted initially? How's it work?
2: So the aircraft initially is going to be piloted because we said we want to do this business model such that it works in existing regulation. We can certify the aircraft in existing aircraft regulation. We can use existing pilot licenses, existing airspace management. Oh, really? That takes a lot of risk um, off our plate. But we're at the same time developing the aircraft to be capable of flying autonomously. And at some point when regulation is there we can then basically switch over and we have experience with the business model already from the piloted version it's very profitable with pilots so you're not depending on on using it's five seats right exactly it's five seats and you're not depending and using um, autonomy to make the business model work
1: well so that video you just showed me says coming 2025
2: Exactly. In 2025, that we will feels be... feels like a long way away. Exactly. We'll be operational by that time. So you can book our service in two or three cities um, on the globe. And from there onwards, we will grow. But we want to be a very realistic company in that field. Um, everything we've said in the past, we would do, we have done. and am showing that prototype now is one of these things. And, <coughs> and we would also like to be realistic about how long it takes to certify an aircraft, to design it, um, to test everything, to build up that service. So you just showed me a video, though, where you have a, a plane that was flying autonomously
1: or a radio-controlled, but without Automated a pilot. or radio-controlled, yeah. yes. And it's
2: 2019. So why do you need six years for this to be real? It's probably five years because... Being in operation yeah. is, is means already you have a few aircraft. Well, what we need to do is we need to industrialize this. We need to qualify the entire supply chain to aerospace standards. And we need to certify the aircraft. We are in the certification process since about one and a half years ago.
1: Is that FAA or is that...
2: It's FAA yep. and the European equivalent oh, right. um, authority, Airworthiness Authority. It typically takes around in total something between four and six years. Oh, really? from the first uh, scratch to having the type
1: certificate right there's a lot of companies trying this it does seem that if you look at all the different ideas they're all pretty dramatically different which is always a really good indication of that nobody's figured out what is the right way if you know if we're all talking about flying taxis or whatever you want to call them they all look like completely different vehicles and different propulsion, different designs, everything. It's not like you know, a plane is a plane, a car is a car. They all look quite different. Why is
2: yours the one that's going to work? They are all different because everybody has a different perception of what matters in the market. So our assumption was what matters is you have to have the lowest noise possible and you have to have the highest range possible. Against this we have designed, so we're using, and the aircraft we use is unique in that sense that we're using these ducted fans, which allow us to capture and dissipate the noise before it actually leaves um, into the environment. We have acoustic liners um, in the engines. That makes us probably market leading in terms of the noise level. And we think we're going to win because noise is going to matter. If you take the assumption noise doesn't matter, you would build a different aircraft. hmm so how quiet is it? It's comparable uh, to a truck passing by. Or if you compare it to a helicopter, you can basically come 10 times closer to the aircraft to be at the same noise level. Right. So if you listen to a helicopter in, uh, in about um, a kilometer distance, a lilium jet would be quite similar in 150 to 100 meters distance. Got you. Do you have any sense of how high you'd be
1: traveling? In other words, because, you know, you can hear, as you say, you can hear a helicopter coming from a long way away. But if you're talking about landing in cities in the middle of a, I don't know, a parking lot or on a
2: building, how quickly does that noise uh, basically disappear? In cruise flight, it's even less than a takeoff because the power is much lower. And then when you're flying in a kilometer altitude or 500 meters altitude, you can basically not hear it anymore. Not in a city. Right. So it takes about 10, 15 seconds and you can't hear it anymore after takeoff. Because we have Airbus,
1: Boeing, all these, everybody's working on some version of this. Where does Uber sit in all of this? Because it doesn't feel like they're not, from memory, they're not creating their own aircraft. They're just trying yes. to create the service yeah. yep. and trying to figure out which vendor is going to do it. Are they, how important are they in this market? In other words, are you trying to sell
2: or are you trying to be able run the service as well so we have a good contact together Um, we have a good relationship but in our case we intend to build up a global air mobility platform and operate our aircraft in this platform and by basically controlling the entire stack of the user experience we can get to a much better user experience and get to something that is differentiated to to other services on the globe now, if you ask me, where is this relative to other companies, etc., <clears throat> I think this market is so big that it needs several companies. Mm. It needs a whole ecosystem to come up. And this is why we're very happy that there is a lot of players out there. And basically, when we founded Lilium, we were more or less alone out there. Yeah. Now, almost the entire aviation industry recognized the potential of of this air taxi concept. And that's great. So we are advocating, for example, a lot that there is an open infrastructure standard, which means that any city can build a standardized takeoff and landing pad. Right. And any operator can approach these pads and and use them. And that gives the city a lot of, um, let's say, reliability, because they're not betting on one company. They know, well, if this company goes bankrupt, there's another 10 companies which could be serving their infrastructure and make the investment worthwhile. So you basically have like a Lilium app. Exactly. So you're going to have a Lilium app, and that works initially in a few cities, ultimately globally. And you can book the jet on this app. And it works like a ride-hailing service with the difference that you're getting an aircraft.
1: And it would have to be just kind of point-to-point. It couldn't be like, well, just drop
2: me off in my front garden. It would never be drop me off in my front garden <laughs> because when you when you're landing somewhere it has to be a certified uh, landing site. Right. So you always have a last mile, and for this you would connect uh, the app to other yeah. service Fly providers, a car to a um, scooter. autonomous car, scooter, whatever you want. Right. 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 We are focusing much more and believing much more in that long distance and regional mobility of the market. So we don't think. It's a good option for our customers to, let's say, you have to do a 10-mile trip Mm -hmm. uh, to spend some five minutes in a taxi, then five minutes to swap the vehicle, then five minutes in the plane, and then five minutes swapping and five minutes in a car. I'd rather spend the whole time in a taxi. And even if it takes five minutes longer or so, I would stay on the ground. But if you're doing a 200-mile trip or a 100-mile trip or so, you can save hours um, in many cases. And then it's actually worth um, swapping the vehicle. So if we fast forward some 15, 20 years into the future, I think maybe more 2030, but at some point um, you're going to have autonomous car services and you're going to have um, air taxi services. And for any trip that is longer than between 20 and 40 miles or so, you would probably book an air taxi because it gets you to your destination about four to five times faster. Cost. The cost is the same like on a ground-based transportation. So that's unbelievable in the first uh, yeah, glance. Did, um, yeah. I can easily For explain why I, that, uh, I just why that is. Daniel various scans. You have a vehicle that is maybe 15 times more expensive than a car, mm-hmm. but it also does 20 times the kilometers in its lifetime than a car. So it has about 6-8 million kilometers okay. until you have to retire the aircraft. So on a per kilometer basis, the depreciation of the vehicle, the cost is actually lower than for a car. Okay. Now, if you take the driver, it's very similar. You have a system that is 5-6 times faster. That means the same pilot or driver would make 5 6 times more kilometers in the same time so even if you have twice the salary for the pilot then you would have uh, for a ground based system because they need a lot of training etc you would still be lower cost per kilometer than you are in a gro- ground based um, ride hailing service and obviously if one day you fly autonomous that part um, of the pilot right. becomes an operator on the ground who may manage 50 aircraft at the same time right so, for example, my parents live in
1: San Jose, which is 50 miles. And the traffic is always horrendous. If I w- took an Uber right now, i.e. not surge pricing, it would probably cost me 60
2: to $75. You would get that at the same price with a lilium jet, but probably within 15 minutes flight time or so, 15, 20 minutes. That all just sounds too good to be true.
1: I presume you have to be at scale, at that point no, because if if you're talking about that depreciation in those figures isn't the key to
2: keep the thing always working so that soon, as soon key. as it lands, yes. people are off, people are on, and then it 's off again exactly that is the key, so for that reason, initially, especially when you fly piloted, you would not fly from any place to any other place on demand, but you would fly on shuttle routes where you have a high two sided demand and only once you have many of these shuttle routes at some point you fly more in a kind of ubiquitous on-demand fashion but you can be very profitable with a relatively small route of 10 15 aircraft connecting Mm. two points if there's good demand on both sides this route is going to be highly profitable
1: are cities taking this on as a reality i mean obviously traffic is probably your best friend
2: They take this very serious. So we were surprised to see how many cities are reaching out to us from anywhere on the globe. They all have the same problems globally with traffic, with Mm -hmm. the time it takes, etc. And they all want to be among the first to have this kind of transportation service. Now, at some point, we have to select and we have to say we can only launch in in two or three regions. Uh, But ultimately, it shows how much demand is going to be there on that market to solve the problems we have today. How old are you? I'm 34. So you're 34 and it's your first company and
1: now you have 350 people and you've raised $100 million. Yeah. Do you ever have moments where you're like, I don't really know what I'm doing or uh, this is all a bit overwhelming or, you know, because you have hundreds of people working for you.
2: So I never had this, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm too much, um, I'm a very responsible person. So the moment I would have the feeling, I don't know what, what would be the next 10 steps ahead. I would feel super nervous and sit down and figure them out. So right. I'm typically living several years ahead of where the company <laughs> is right now. But obviously, I also have to say, I wouldn't have founded the company if I had known how complex it is to build this kind of business, um, to, to engineer these things, to certify these things. We're well in control of that now. And we have a great leadership team of super experienced people yeah. from very large companies who have done these things before. But you're growing with the company. So the company starts with your four co-founders. And uh, at the time, you would not be capable of running a business of 300. But you're growing at the same time as the business is growing. What's the hardest part? One of the hard parts was finding this team. So we needed a lot of specialists um, on, on the engineering side. And equally, we need super experienced and strong managers, which have at the same time a very good startup mindset. They need to be very entrepreneurial, very forward-thinking, very dynamic, very energetic, etc., because we're also building up a company that needs to be designing, manufacturing and operating aircraft in a certified aviation fashion uh, and in large scale. So you can't just do this in a, let's say, garage kind of way, we're throwing right. a minimum viable product on the market and we're like 20 people or so, and, but hey, it flies. This, w- this wouldn't work. <laughs> it's a very different thing to, to build um, an aerospace company and make it successful uh, than, than building uh, some other companies where you have much shorter product cycles, for example. And
1: have you had much interaction with the Boeings and Airbuses who probably, I imagine, I don't know how they feel about you trying to kind of
2: impinge on their turf We have good relationships, but uh, for the moment, I think we we maintain a healthy competition. We're not like in deep partnerships or anything like this at the moment. So how much money are you going to need? We will need several hundred millions until we are on the market and and profitable, etc. Are you raising that money now? We're not raising at the moment specifically in a sense that there's anything special going on at the moment, but we're continuously meeting investors, some of the best investors around the globe, building up relationships continuously. We're well-funded at the moment. We have very big investors on board at the moment, but we will bring other investors on board over the next couple of years. Yeah. And Tencent
1: is a big investor. Yes. And obviously, when the Chinese government wants something to happen, it happens quite quickly. At least that's the, what people say. I presume they're, they have a special interest in this because obviously they have huge smog issues in their cities, you can't even see the sun for many days at a time. How interested is China in this and how aggressive do you think they will be in trying to roll this out once it kind of becomes a reality?
2: They are very interested in this for the reasons you mentioned. They have a very large population, they need emission-free transportation, they need fast transportation, they have invested hundreds of billions into high-speed rail, so they know very well the pain of and and cost of of um, ground-based high-speed transportation. That's why they are very interested. At the same time, aviation in China is not yet where it is right now in terms Mm. of regulatory environment, certification, etc. But I would expect that China will be quick in catching up. They may be At the moment, not uh, where the US is, for example, or or other parts of the world in terms of history in aviation and and certification, etc. But I think once they decide, this is what we're going to do, and we do this in some kind of trial environment and then roll it out on other parts of the country, uh, we'll be surprised how quickly they will do this.
0: As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot... Is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Cool fact a
2: crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: And so just in terms of, like, the scaling up, the industrialization of it to make these things cheap, obviously, which is important, do you have to wait to do that until the FAA says, okay, this is an airworthy vehicle, now go forth and prosper? Or can you start that whole industrial ramp up before you get that sign-off?
2: So you definitely do start your industrial ramp up. Um, It doesn't mean that you're producing aircraft which you later use in service. But every process you use, every um, tool you use, all these things need to be part of your aerospace, let's say, system or quality management system. So everything needs to be tested and managed um, before you actually do it. So that means you will produce some certification prototypes ahead, but also you will produce engines and battery modules and all these things ahead of your actual ramp-up of production. You can theoretically also produce serial aircraft before you have received the type certificate, but you are doing this at risk. So if anything needs to be changed, you have to change the aircraft which you have produced. So typically you would only do this in the very end phase of, of the certification period. Right. It's
1: 2019. Let's go to 2039. What is a typical kind of, let's say, a, li- a Lilium city where you're already operating? What does that look like? How active will it be? Is it? Are, will the skies look different? Because obviously everybody's talking about drones and there's going to be lots of drones everywhere, delivering packages and hamburgers, et cetera.
2: It will be a little bit different, but probably not as much as we expect at the moment yeah. in a sense that, um, as I said before, we don't believe so much in super short flights within cities, So there will be a lot of traffic coming in and out of the city in Lilium jets. And you will have multiple houses in the city, office buildings, parking lots, etc., which have on on, on their top landing sites. And it will be something totally normal for us. So if you would have to get out of the city, it would be a normal thought to take out your Lilium app and and book an aircraft that flies you 100 miles out or so. But if you would have to just get four blocks away, uh, you would probably... In some cases do it, but in most cases you would try not to take an aircraft. And I think here we will see huge cultural differences. So as much as there's automotive cities today, and uh, especially the Germans like their inner cities where you are not allowed to drive in a car, etc., you will see the same cultural differences in cities all over the globe. So there will be cities where you have parcel delivery drones and inner city flight and, and everything is quite packed. And there'll be cities which may just regulate this and say, we allow to fly out of the city, uh, but we don't want to use our airspace um, for for local flights within the city. And we build subways and autonomous car services, and we make sure there's no traffic jams, and this is all very fluent. In the dense population of a city, you can afford ground-based transportation because the, the usage is so high that it's still relatively low cost, even if you have to build tunnels and you're paying a hundred million per kilometer of the tunnel. So why not just build these things? That's what we do. Yeah, but what I mean is,
1: why just not stick to that? Because it feels like if you're talking about also operating the service and dealing with governments and regulators and passengers and all that stuff, you know, Boeing doesn't, I'm not a passenger of Boeing. I'm a passenger of
2: whatever British Airways United. You were in the past. (laughs) There was a time when Boeing was also operating aircraft. And it was hugely successful. At some point, it got split up uh, and Mm. it became one of today's airlines. I don't know which one and, and Boeing separately. So it makes sense from a lot of perspectives. The first one that is super important for us is by controlling the whole vertical integration, you can get to a much better customer experience because you don't have the barriers of of different companies in between. You can tailor your app, your booking system, your gates, etc., the experience in the aircraft, the low noise in the aircraft. You can tailor everything to one brand experience. And um, the other advantage is that it's more profitable. If you run a platform business with... Aircraft in a network with network effects in the service, Mm -hmm. etc. It's more profitable and more defensible than um, being an OEM um, in in that service. And especially it makes sense if you are the only one who has that technology. If you have a very distinguished aircraft technology and architecture and and performance, etc. in the plane, it wouldn't make sense to just sell it and, and have somebody else make profit with it. But for us, the key point is really to control the in, end-to-end user experience and, and coming up with something that's just awesome. If you look at today's aviation and you take a short-haul flight, the flight typically takes, the actual flight time may be 45 minutes, yep. but your whole trip from entering into the airport to leaving the destination airport is maybe four hours. And that is because nobody takes ownership of the whole chain. Because there's no reason why we would not be quicker in boarding airplanes and why we would not be quicker in doing security and all these things. For a train, you can arrive at the station and jump into the train five minutes later. So if we added security scanners on the train stations, it would be a bit longer, but it wouldn't need to be an overhead of one and a half hours. Right, and uh, the reason here is that you're going through multiple different companies and entities, from the airport operator to the catering services of the airport uh, the airline um, the manufacturer of the aircraft and to change something in that system, just making an airplane that allows you a quicker boarding, Boeing and Airbus could do this, but they would need to align with all their customers they would need to change maybe the gates on the airports on hundreds or thousands of airports globally. So moving a system like this is extremely difficult. And that's why a company that is vertically integrated will always be able to create a better user experience than um, right. being split up. But would that mean you'd need your own airport skyports? We don't expect to have our own skyports. We may rent some gates in, in, in public skyports like um, airlines rent gates today yeah. on, on airports. But as I said before... We're very much in favor of an open ecosystem in this field because ultimately, if we succeed in building up an ecosystem around air taxis, and that's what we're seeing happening right now, then this is going to be something that's ubiquitous. Globally, it becomes a normal new means of transportation in the developed world and in the emerging markets. You have to think also of of countries which did not maybe have the time or the money to invest billions over decades into building infrastructure, they can leapfrog this. If there's a of global like the, the ecosystem the and industry, phones. they can Exactly. Right. So what we're doing to high speed transportation is similar to what mobile data or mobile phones did to telephones. You can just leapfrog that phase of digging billions into the ground and and leaving it there and being super inflexible. Presumably though, best markets are not going to be at least
1: initially in the developing world like places in Africa where it's to your point they don't have the infrastructure I don't imagine you're going to be focusing there first just because I imagine
2: there won't be as much demand probably not at launch especially when you're still flying piloted but if you look at the business model numbers and all the modeling we have done there's basically no reason why this would not be uh, operated similarly in, in developing countries mm. because the pilot is cheaper there, the maintenance is cheaper, etc. So there's there's good ways of setting this up. And large parts of the cost is not the vehicle. Uh, it's more the operations happening in, in the area where you actually do the service. Everything from maintenance to pilot to ground operations. How long
1: will it take to charge?
2: So with today's batteries, it takes about... 25 minutes to half an hour to do a fast charge but there's a lot of battery developments um, which project that in the future in five years or so we'll probably be able to charge much faster and this is very interesting for us because charging time is basically downtime
1: well it gets back to that point around how much these are used how, how often they
2: are in the air basically which is key for you to make money so for for short trips we are in a very good position because of the range of our aircraft if we fly just 40 miles we need seven eight minutes of recharging which is the similar time that it takes to just board the passengers and and deboard the previous passengers so here you basically have no loss for charging if you do a very long trip You spend like half an hour on the ground charging. The charging time shows that it's very helpful if you have a very efficient aircraft, because that means um, it takes less time to recharge a certain length of a trip. How many companies do you know of that are working on something like this? Personally knowing a few, but I've seen that online there's about 150 companies. 150. Climbing, they do something in this field, be it as a supplier or be it as an OEM. Some of them are, are probably very serious, some of them are more a bit dreaming. But overall it's it's a great time to be in in this in this let's say dynamics of a whole industry being formed, a whole ecosystem coming up and, and everybody going in, from the startups to the large players like yeah. Boeing and Airbus.
1: What was your worst day at work?
2: My worst day at work. Mm-hmm i didn't didn't have a bad day at work since. you've never had a bad day at work I mean there's days where stuff goes <laughs> wrong, but yeah have you ever but so I still remember when I was studying, mm-hmm. I had many mornings where I thought I don't want to get up. this doesn't make sense. I'm doing lots of calculations of stuff that other people have done before, and it just didn't motivate me. Yeah. I finished my studies and it was fine, but uh, it, it was more I spent a lot of energy in motivating me mm-hmm. that was vanished on the day we had our own company. So motivation was never a problem. I'm every day enjoying working with the team. It's amazing to have a super dedicated and smart team working on one problem and everybody throws in double energy into, into solving problems. If you ask me about a bad day, I think the bad days are those where where things don't work, right? You, you you assemble something, you test it, it doesn't work. Um, then the next thing doesn't yeah. work. Then your test bench breaks down. And we had this kind of days. Yeah. But I don't really call this a bad day because it's nobody's fault. It's just part of the business. Any crash landings? We didn't have crashes, knock on wood, so far with the the large prototypes. We had, in the early days, uh, small 3D-printed prototypes, and they were 3D-printed because we didn't have software testing and verification. So we just tested it on a 3D-printed little drone before it was flashed on the large one. But that was the early days. Um, My co-founder, Matthias, once flew one into a tree.
1: Flew what into a tree?
2: A, a little prototype, one of the small 3D-printed <laughs> ones. Uh, it was almost dark already, a whole day of flying. Uh, did, we all stood around it, Matthias, there's a tree. And then the prototype just, just flew straight into the tree. <laughs> At least
1: it was a small one.
2: Yeah, it was a small one.
1: Um, and I guess this last question. So I'm just trying to wrap my head around why, again, I've, I might have asked it before, but just why do you think so many people are trying now? Because, as you said, when you started, you felt like you were alone or very few people are doing. Now there's 150 companies doing this. Why?
2: Well, the fact that it's happening in general is linked to the technology capabilities. Mm. Batteries are at an inflection point that it makes sense to do electric aviation. That wasn't the case 10 years ago. Motors they were too heavy, they they stored too little energy. Motors are in the same inflection point uh, a few years ago that they got sufficiently light um, electric motors, power electronics. So, all these things are there, but we're already over that inflection point. So, you could, if you had started development seven years ago, you could have today a proper electric air taxi service. And then, I think there's a little bit a herd effect. So, if you have some successful projects in this field, then more will follow. This is also natural. And I think it's a great time where all the inventors can try out stuff. Yeah. There's a lot of projects which are not in certification right now. They are just demonstrators, um, people trying out stuff. And there may be great things coming out, right? And then later, once things are certified and on the market, etc., in, in 10, 15 years, you will see that there's a consolidation of, of aircraft concepts, And there may be just two or three prevailing for different purposes. Um, And that depends on, do you need something that's more optimized for hover, efficient hover? um, Are you optimizing harder for noise or for range or so? That means there may be two, three, four different architectures prevailing, but not like the 50 different uh, versions we (laughs) see right now out there. And when you talk to investors now, is the reception
1: much different than when you got initially, when you're going out and saying, yeah, I'm... A first-time founder going to start
2: a flying car company? Like, what are you doing? And this is electric and it can still fly. I mean, we really had to educate from scratch uh, all these things you can skip now. Um, But besides of that, it's not very different. So investors are still asking for timelines, for risks, for for technological milestones, etc., for unit economics. All these topics are, are pretty similar to the past. Well, I wish you luck. Thank you. And that is all the
1: time we have this week to talk about air taxis. I just think this is going to take a lot longer than people expect. But I could be totally wrong. It sounds like the technology isn't nearly as far away as people think. I do feel like the regulations, the cities, the governments, the infrastructure, there's a lot that still has to be sorted out before this stuff actually really takes off so to speak. Um, but anyhow, I hope that you found the int- the conversation interesting. And please, give a rating and review. It really does help in Apple Podcasts. And I will also be writing about this in the newspaper this weekend. So do check that out. It'll be in the business section writing a story on our feature on the kind of wider world of flying cars. Up, pardon me. Or taxis. You can also follow me on Twitter at... Danny Fortson. Have a good one. Bye bye.
0: VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen.
1: VoiceOver on settings.
0: So you can navigate it just by listening.
1: Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11.
0: And get on with your day.